Welcome to Under the Blanket with your host, Baba Here Love. And here we are in the here and now, under Miraji's blanket, deep within his heart, looking through his eyes as one. And you know, I'm here with Ryan, uh, who's been a regular on the show. And he has uh, a book called The Power of Now. And I read this book a while ago. It's uh, by Eckhart Tolle. And it's the same teaching from my uh, standpoint as Ram Dass's Be Here Now. But it's it's the same message using different way of explaining it. So that's always been interesting to me. So take it away, Ryan. Oh, hello, Baba. And hello, listeners. Good to be back. Good to be here. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm going to read from this book. It's This one was kind of what started my whole path. I'm very grateful for it. Um, there's a technique I'm about to share that's really powerful for trying when you're meditating. And it comes from Chapter 5, The State of Presence. It's not what you think it is. Then somebody asked the question. You keep talking about the state of presence as the key. I think I understand it intellectually, but I don't know if I have ever truly experienced it. I wonder, is it what I think it is, or is it something entirely different? And then Eckhart responds, it's not what you think it is. You can't think about presence, and the mind can't understand it. Understanding presence is being present. Try a little experiment. Close your eyes and say to yourself, I wonder what my next thought is going to be. Then become very alert and wait for the next thought. Be like a cat watching a mouse hole. What thought is going to come out of the mouse hole? Try it now. All right. I, I like that section. And, you know, um, my um, meditations lately have been using that in a way. What um, I do this Ram Dass guided meditation. It's like a 10-minute. And basically, um, the meditation, the one-pointedness of focus is on that state of presence. So it's a more advanced technique, I'd say. Because some people, they're not even in presence. It's not like they're going back and forth from presence to in their mind. So they have to find presence. You know, and this technique is for people that are able to find presence, but they still have a mind that pulls them out of presence. And I've been doing that lately, and I find it's interesting that, yeah, some, you know, you can't think about it. It's not in the mind. It's not a thought process. You could intellectually think, oh, not the future, not the past. But your thoughts are like clouds, and this is like the sky. And from the clouds, you can't perceive the sky. you got to be in the sky to, to even understand the clouds. Yeah, and this uh, experiment, as he calls it, or meditative practice, it was really one of my first aha moments. Because what you notice is that when you ask the question, I wonder what my next thought is going to be. And you're sitting there listening and waiting for an answer. You are finally in the very presence you're seeking. You know, that state of alert, silent attention. That is presence. Um, and then, you know, maybe a second goes by and all of a sudden thoughts come in. Like, I don't know if I'm doing this right. Or, oh, wow, I'm in presence, you know. And the very thought, I'm in presence, breaks the presence. <laughs> You know, uh, the mind can be tricky, though. There are many, uh, Ramana Maharshi talks about many sheets of the intellect. 
and you could get into a state of calm witnessing and still be in the mind. In the mind, the I am he talked about is a sheath. Me and Jagadesh talked about this. Is a sheath of awareness where you're aware of the other thoughts in this I am sort of presence, but it's still in the mind. It's not the self. It's not the eternal presence. It's still, a, it's like a, a stepping stone towards that deeper presence. And, you know, it's funny that once you get into the self, it's limitless. And it's totally silent. So what's your take on that, Ryan? Yeah, that's a great pointer to keep in mind. Um, you know, it's funny. I mean, even what we're doing right now, right? We're using language, we're using words, we're using thoughts uh, to attempt to point someone to an experience of no thought. Um, and, you know, the mind is very clever. There's all kinds of backdoors that you have to pay attention to and be very alert for. Um, for example, a lot of times what I hear, what happens for someone is uh, they ask this question, they hear a thought, and and then they follow that thought thinking that they have to finish it or that they have to feed it and go more into it rather than just dropping it and returning to the silence, returning to the question. Then the second part of what happens where people lose the presence in this practice is so you ask yourself, what is my next thought going to be? And then you listen and then a thought comes in and you catch the thought. So all of that, there's presence happening. But then instantaneously, the mind sneaks back in in its comfort zone and it comments on what just happened. It comments on what thought you just caught. And as soon as it makes any comment, as soon as any the silence is then broken once again, the mind has re-entered. And it happens so swiftly, so seamlessly that it's it can be very difficult to catch unless your presence is highly alert, like a cat. What about uh, sensations and feelings and emotions? And, uh, you know, some people, some person out there might not be struggling with the inner myelog at a certain point, and they're, uh, they have a pain in their knee, and that's really distracting from being present, or a stomach ache, or an emotion, you know? So comment on emotions and sensations. So... As far as physical pain goes, there isn't a lot we can do in, in some sense, right? It's whereas the psychological pain, the suffering is really where the spiritual practice has that power to alleviate. Um, although what I've found with myself with physical pains, for example, is like, let's say, I don't know, I get a paper cut and it stings. The sting, the sensation of the, you know, the, of the sting is, is uncomfortable. However, it's not unbearable unless I'm resisting the sensation of the pain. Once that level of resistance comes in of like, oh, this hurts or oh, this sucks and all this mental judgment and labeling comes in, suddenly then it's like the pain gets turned up three or four notches. And it's really interesting how our perspective and our psychological reactivity can actually influence the experience of pain. That's why like a lot of people have a high pain tolerance and then some don't have the opposite um and so again you know if there's physical pain the really the practice is not so much how do you alleviate the physical necessarily but how can you stay super alert to any mental pain that's being awakened by this physical pain like maybe 
feelings of being a victim of life or or uh oh this isn't fair or this shouldn't be happening or you know projection of future i want to feel better rather than deep acceptance of what is which in that moment is pain because it will pass everything passes everything is impermanent including our physical pains eventually it will pass um so you know that's kind of the practice with physical pain and then emotion emotions are really powerful and beautiful topic in and of itself because like you said you can have you you can think so to speak that you're in a state of no mind but if there's if you're paying attention to your not only the voice in your head the internal dialogue but you also have to pay attention to the feelings in the body because the emotional feelings in the body are very honest representations of what's going on in our minds, deep, deep layers of our mind that we may not be aware of. So, for example, if you feel fear or you notice this emotion of fear inside of you or discomfort inside of you, and you're not really sure where it's even coming from, uh, it doesn't, you're not having fearful thoughts in that moment, but that fear is still there. And then you bring your presence, the same presence we were talking about, that observational attention, into that feeling of fear and what you'll find is in doing that and sort of helping dissolve that eventually you'll 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 notice or a thought will come up that you realize was this fundamental internal dialogue that was going on sort of under your radar of awareness or unconsciousness that was actually stirring up the fear and once that is light is brought to that then it's then it's dissolved and you're free of the fear. The fear dissolves the fear. You transcend it. But like anytime you have a uncomfortable emotion, which the Buddha called suffering, anytime you catch any sort of negative emotion, it, you can't just go around it with spiritual practice. You know, it's not about like just jumping over it or casting a spell of it being an illusion and it suddenly disappears. It's, if, you know, it's not that simple. It's more that you have to actually go through it. You have to go into it to really dissolve it and to recognize it as illusion. Because if you're wanting to make it, to call it out as an illusion before you've gone into it, then there's a fear of going into it that is actually validating it as being real. Whereas the, the courage to actually go through our own emotional pains and wounds is a trust that it will not destroy you. That who you are, your presence, is strong enough to get and heal anything that is in your past or that is being shaken up in various forms of suffering. So the emotional observation is an incredibly powerful and practical tool for the spiritual practice that I, I use every day, every second of every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to get into, um, as far as uh, that practice, uh, I, when I do it, uh, which is, yeah, all the time, but what I do in my specific sitting practice is what I do is like, I don't, something comes up, I don't push it away. You know, that's like you were talking about the ghost of going through it. I don't push it away. I allow it just to do its thing, to just be. And then I don't cling to it. And if I don't cling to it and I allow it just to be, it awakens a deeper being in me and the identification with the body is gone and I'm not my body and that's what spiritual really means what is born of flesh is flesh what is born of spirit is spirit it's a transcendental awareness that potentially you could have the greatest pain or the greatest pleasure and 
simply witness it and not be identified with the body. What I noticed is, though, is sometimes really intense pains are harder to transcend than less intense pains are so on and so forth. Like someone that might have a mild depression, find it easy to just be with it and go through it like you were saying. But a really intense depression really sucks them in, you know? Yeah, you know, it's 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 a, it's all relative. Um, for myself and for most people I know that I've had a deep awakening, it came from deep suffering. So in that sense, it's like, yeah, the suffering is harder, so to speak, or it's it's more intense and it's it's it is more challenging to to transcend, so to speak. However, the other side of that transcendence is so rewarding, because in a lot of ways, it's like the harder it is to get through the stronger the connection to who you really are when you do get through it. The the downside of the more gentle challenges is that they're harder to catch or they're not motivating enough for us to take them seriously to actually work through them. As for myself, I experienced levels of depression and, and anxiety and fear and paranoia before having my own awakening. And But it wasn't until it got to a you know, just the self-destruction level that I was really desperately willing to seek answers, to seek help, to sort of get over myself and my pride and admit I don't have a clue what's going on here and I need some help. <laughs> and uh, and in that humility, I think, is also where sometimes the grace can enter. Uh, and yeah, so like, it's it's complicated, you know, and it's not like one way is, is the best or that I don't even really believe that there is necessarily an easier path for anyone. I think in, in relatively speaking, everybody experiences tremendous amounts of suffering in their own way, whether you're you're born into a rich, affluent family or you're born into extreme poverty. The suffering looks different on the surface, but the internal struggle is, is quite the same. It just in different ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh, I think at this point we should move on to another reading. So how about you find another page of The Power Now by Edgar Tolle? Oh, gladly. Um, I didn't have another one picked, so I'll just pick a random one. Yeah, random one, random one. Okay, Raji, please guide Brian's hand to the perfect section. And he did so. This is one of my favorites. It's called Silence. It's on... Uh, I don't even know what chapter, but silence. The questioner asks, are there any other portals apart from those you just mentioned? Yes, there are, Eckhart responds. The unmanifested is not separate from the manifested. It pervades this world, but is so well disguised that almost everybody misses it completely. If you know where to look, you'll find it everywhere. A portal opens up every moment. Do you hear that dog barking in the distance or the car passing by? Listen carefully. Can you feel the presence of the unmanifested in that? You can't? Look for it in the silence out of which the sounds come and into which they return. Pay more attention to the silence than to the sounds. Paying attention to the outer silence creates inner silence. The mind becomes still. A portal is opening up. Every sound is born out of silence, dies back into silence, and during its lifespan is surrounded by silence. 
That is beautiful. That is beautiful. I find when I quiet my mind down, when I just be, uh, yeah, there's there's a silence beyond the sounds, the quiet mind, really. Everything, every sound arises out of the no sound. You know, there's a lot of truth to what Eckhart's talking about there. You know, it reminds me of the Tao Te Ching, you know, which he was a big fan of, Eckhart Tolle. Where it says, however things flourish, they return to the roots from which they grew. And that sound that arises in your consciousness eventually becomes no sound. Well, what are the roots? The roots are the no sound. Yet it arose, and then it just subsided, but where did it arise from? Where did it subside? And that, that's really, it's funny, because when you were saying that a car rushed by, and I really had a very samadhi moment where I was like, whoa, it was just like all, like there was no sound. It was just total silence. There was no form. It was just for a moment there, nothing was happening. There was nothing going on. It was all just here and just nothingness. And, you know, there's still a consciousness in that that just bees, you know? So, uh, you know, it's like, uh, it's amazing that here we are talking (coughs) podcast. And if we were silent, quote unquote, that would be dead air. I mean, imagine Joe Rogan doing a podcast where it was just dead air, you know? So it's really about (laughs) words, these discussions are for your mind to chew on, but to remember they're not the thing. They're just chew, your mind's chewing and you just be, you know? Mm. Yeah, silence is a powerful one. What I hear in this too is that it's sort of an inverted way or sort of flipped out, flipped back way to experiencing inner silence. It's like when you start to pay attention to the outer silence, for example, if you start to pay attention to the silence between the words that I'm speaking right now, as soon as you recognize that silence, there's an inner silence that is like awakened or or shuffles around a little bit. <laughs> and And that's it. You know, that is it. That is the, that is presence. That is being. It's that silence. The other one he mentions right after this one is space, uh, space observation. Same concept of noticing the space, the emptiness around your physical, physical world of all the various physical forms. And when you notice the empty space, again, you feel the bliss and peace of space within because it's so all interconnected. Uh, and Ram Das said, the quieter you become, the more you can hear. Uh, even to the point, you know, and that's, that was his quote there, but even to the point of like, can you be quiet enough to hear silence? That's, that's the, the deep level of, of uh, no mind. Yeah, that's beautiful. Okay, well, let's read another passage. Okay, well, I'll read the space one then. Um, Just as no sound can exist without silence, nothing can exist without no thing. Without the empty space that enables it to be, every physical object or body has come out of nothing, is surrounded by nothing, and will eventually return to nothing. Not only that, but even inside every physical body, there is far more nothing than something. Physicists tell us that the solidity of matter is an illusion. Even seemingly solid matter, including your physical body, is nearly 100% empty space. 
so vast are the distances between atoms compared to their size. What is more, even inside every atom is mostly empty space. What is left is more like a vibrational frequency than particles of solid matter, more like a musical note. Buddhists have known that for over 2,500 years. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form, states the Heart Sutra, one of the best-known ancient Buddhist texts. The essence of all things is emptiness. You know, uh, speaking of physics, and that uh, they discovered... Um, it's a controversial theory, but way less controversial now. It's pretty much accepted that that empty space that we were talking about has energy in it, which is strange, right? It's emptiness. It's no form. It's space, but it has energy in it called zero point energy. And supposedly you could get this, you know, they've done these experiments where you're able to get energy out of that space. There's this, they're trying to do it with CERN in Switzerland. They're trying to get vast amounts of energy uh, somehow out of empty space because uh, the theory is they did the math, basically, right? They did the math, and the math didn't add up unless you have this energy in empty space. Isn't it? So that's sort of like what the Buddha was saying, you know? Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting how science is finally starting to catch up to some of these spiritual truths that have been known for so long. <laughs> the science is like, okay, now we finally agree. <laughs> for thousands of years we called you crazy but now we're finding evidence so <laughs> yeah yeah it's, they're coming together I mean uh, even the Dalai Lama he lets his monks be you know study the brain scan and all that I don't know what that's really going to figure out but it's something you know you could see how their brains are basically very different than your average person's brain you know but it's not it, you can't study the formlessness with science except a little bit sort of like through experiments indirectly you know ultimately to real like you could know you could intellectually know that there is a oneness that there's a god there's a formless and form and consciousness and all that look there's the quantum physics look these are the experiments i know but unless you give up that knowing and truly be you don't you're not in it you're missing out you're one thought away from where it is Right here. Yeah. And I had experience reading Eckhart Tolle. I remember reading Eckhart Tolle, uh, his book. Like, when I listen to Eckhart Tolle talk, I get a lot out of it. But specifically, The Power of Now. Like, every word in there it feels like perfectly, like, just shooting right into my presence, you know? And then when I hear Eckhart Tolle talk, I'm like, well, he's going to sound like the book. And it falls short a little bit in my eyes uh, compared to the power of the book. And I know that's ultimately in my perception because we're all the guru and so on and so forth. But, you know, I just thought it'd be interesting to talk about. Yeah, I mean, he definitely wrote his books from a deep place of stillness. And in my own experience, stillness can fluctuate. You know, even when you're enlightened to various degrees, it's like, the stillness can sort of fluctuate and it's almost at the mercy of the universe, what the universe, you know, thy will be done type of thing. And so there could be that he had a, maybe in the day that he read the book, he was in a different space of when he wrote the book. Um, 
But then, as you mentioned, the other important thing and almost more important thing for us to keep in mind is our own perspectives. Like, where do our opinions, where do our interpretations come from? You know, when you when you have the idea of, of something not matching, for example, where does that idea come from? You know, it comes from our own mind and our own mind is has so much um, conditioning and bias and from our own experiences that that's really honestly more important than whether he was coming from that same exact pure state or not. What's more important for our own practice is to continue to just observe where does my opinions come from? Where do my beliefs come from? Where is my interpretation of X, Y, or Z? Where is it even coming from? You know, and just pausing for a moment, humbling ourselves and, and really investigating that is such a powerful way to dissolve ego, little bits of ego that sneak in. Um, and, you know, one thing I think it's really important to mention that I've, I've really started to understand on a deeper level over the years of studying is that there's nothing personal in ego. If you have a bit of ego, if you discover a bit of ego in yourself, there's nothing personal about it or you see it in somebody else. Uh, nobody's wrong. You know, there's nothing to be embarrassed of, and nobody's wrong for it. It's just, uh, it's all just part of, like, the evolution of nature. And therefore, it's, it all has its divine purpose. If there is somebody who's operating in ego, then that's okay. That's where they need to be in that moment. Uh, but generally speaking, when we observe ego in others, it means some own, our own little ego is, is sneaking in and, and uh, speaking in our back ear you know so to speak and it's it's hard to catch because it's so familiar the whole how the mind sort of speaks to us and it convinces us of an opinion or an idea or a judgment or a interpretation it's so convincing because it has been speaking to us our whole lives so you know really breaking up that identification is not an easy thing and it just takes consistently paying attention paying attention, paying attention, and questioning every thought that we have, every perspective, every opinion, uh, just for the sake of staying humble and for keeping our own practice. And Because, you know, then it's like, and I believe we've mentioned this before in other podcasts, is that the ego is so tricky because you could, you know, let's say you break out of your normal conditioning a, a good bit of with the stuff your family passed down to you. But then you accidentally, unknowingly take on the spiritual ego, you know, of like identifying as being the spiritual being. And I mean, I caught that temptation in myself uh, to identify, you know, as anything in the physical dimension is technically a level of ego. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that either. If that's what happens, that's OK, too. You know, you just at some point you have to you have to pause and look at it and be like, oh, damn it, there's some ego, okay. And then the second you recognize it, second you go, oh, there it is, it's it's lost its power. Its power is completely dependent on us uh, not seeing it. So the moment we can see it, it, it we regain our power, we regain our consciousness. So that's you know that's like pretty much the whole practice summed up. But it is a practice. And we're reaching the end of the uh, the show under the blanket with your host, Baba Here Love. 
and Ryan. This has been a great episode on the power of now and Eckhart Tolle. And before we go, you know, we've talked a lot of talk, but let's let's together, listeners, me, Ryan, let's all take one conscious breath together now. And it's amazing, you know, that that practice is very helpful to many. And when people say they don't have time to meditate, they have busy lives, whatever, you know, tell them, well, try taking 10 conscious breaths a day. And they'll be like, hey, that's a good idea. And they'll, they'll set aside a little moment or two where they could just focus on one breath and then go back in the marketplace, you know. <laughs> anyway, this has been Under the Blanket. Thank you all for joining us, Ryan. Love you guys.